kid that wanted to know the truth. And that's partly why I am so drawn to clarity because I've always felt like even if the truth is horrible, I'd rather know what it is because then I know what to, I, I know what I'm dealing with and I have choices. podcast season two episode one and for this episode to start out the season we're very excited to have with us karen martin in consultant three-time award-winning author president and founder of tkmg very accomplished author of my favorite book in the whole world karen how are you i'm well thanks how are you thank you for having me on good good we're glad we could have you on so for our audience out there for anybody that has been under a rock for the last 10 years uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately. Well, uh, we our newest venture is TKMG Academy, which is our online learning arm. And the, the consulting side of the house has been together for 28 years now. I can't even believe it. Um, and so we have a mixture of consulting clients and now um, online learning. Um, very excited about both. Uh, it's very nice to get moving post-COVID and uh, get back on site because that's where you can really see the action. and. Um, be able to make, I think, greater progress. Although we made more progress uh, virtually than I thought we would. It, it, it turned out to be quite a surprise. Um, so yeah, just keeping busy with the ramping up that's post COVID and um, all kinds of new things coming up with the Academy. We're always putting out new courses and it keeps us on our toes. Yeah, awesome. So, you know, with COVID, a couple of things surprised me, I think. Um, one was just how quickly people adapted. Yeah. Um, you know, we actually saw our business increase during COVID, um, ironically. Um, and the other thing that surprised me was we learned a little bit about uh, how we can cooperate remotely. Um, mm -hmm. And then as soon as the bans and stuff were lifted, all of these companies, you know, went right back to how they were doing it before. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me as well. Yeah, I, I thought the virtual work went much better than I thought it would. Um, the one thing that I feel like we will never be able to do as well virtually as in person is really read the room. And you yeah. know, when you're starting to get into you know, tricky conversations and concepts that are new to people that they may be like, hmm, not sure about that. You know, it's just harder to draw that out. And I love drawing out resistance and just dealing with it and you know, getting, getting the elephant in the room out there. And um, that part of it was harder. You know, I have a two monitor setup and the camera's here. And oftentimes whatever we're working on is here as well. And yet the people are over here. And so you sometimes miss things. And um, fortunately, a lot of teams will, someone will make a comment about someone's facial expression or something. And then I can just say, could you repeat that again, please? <laughs> Let me see that. Um, and so, yeah, but it, it, um, it really was surprising. And the, adapt, the adaptation that you mentioned is truly remarkable. I mean, we're such a resilient species and incredibly adaptable. And this really proved it in a big way. Yeah, it's really weird to me that people who do the same role I do for large corporations, like not even two years ago, they would, I travel 80% of my life. You know, just why? Like, just why? There's no reason that is non-value added, non-necessary waste for you to be on a plane 20 hours a week to do the same thing I do from home. Yeah, are you finding any difference? Or is, is there any loss at all being from home? I, 
I think the main loss for me is I am such an extroverted, like, people person that I'll get lonely at home. Uh-huh. Just, especially yeah. with John a thousand miles away. I'm like, nobody's coming for dinner tonight. <laughs> but do you miss, do you think the results are 100% the same doing it? Like when it comes to individual contribution, like it's so much better. Like I don't have any other barriers between me and anything. Mm. I don't have humans distracted me from doing X or Y task. Now that being said, some collaboration and social aspects are much worse, but for individual contributor, if I just do stuff that's ironed out already and creatively problem solve, like it just can't lose. I have no commute. I have nothing stopping me. I can lay upside down and eat ice cream while I think about the task. Like I just can't lose. I've seen, I think, three challenges to remote work or experienced, you know, either in myself or others. One is teamwork when you're working together on a project, as you mentioned, reading the room, uh, just being able to deal with people. We're hardwired to read facial expressions and body language and stuff like that. And not everybody's the kind of person that can look into a camera and say, man, this sucks. You know, we need to go a different direction. Um, And so having that camaraderie um, it has been a little bit challenging. Um, the second is, you know, go to Gemba. Like we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to work with uh, Stryker Medical some years ago. And they actually had these, um, what's that thing called? Paul Blart Mall Cop, a segue. <laughs> it was like a segue with an iPad on the top of it. Um, it, which reminds me of an episode of Community that we won't get into, but um, you have these iPads running around and you could kind of virtually go to Gemba, but kind of not, you know, uh, that seems like a barrier that you, you just can't uh, get over. Um, and then the third one, which I didn't experience because I've not had to work remotely this whole time, um, but quite a few of my friends have brought up is they didn't realize until they couldn't go to work how much they valued having that separate professional space uh, in which to produce. And it's been a challenge for a lot of my friends and, and colleagues, you know, to, to work from home and be as productive, um, you know, as they are in the workplace. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll kind of see how this all works out, I guess. I really hope that companies will allow a wide range of, of, options for people because for example we have a client and i work with five managers and there's one manager on that team that is really becoming a a shadow of her former self she's so extroverted and so not enjoying being at home and um and there are many reasons for that um but that you know it's reality is that you know home isn't just work um and so going to work was a good thing for her another one is just like kicking and screaming about the possibility of going back um, just does not want to go back into the office in any way, shape, or form for any amount of time and everything in between. And so, you know, hopefully we'll find a way to do a blended model that works really well. But to your second point, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about the group activities and collaboration, things like that, it, and going to the Gemba is that you know, one of the greatest experiments we've had personally and, and for the company here is that we have a client in Eastern Europe and we're doing a full-blown transformation on every on every you know uh, every element of of what makes a lean operational lean operation and culture, and the production part of it. It happens to be a manufacturer. 
The, the production part of it has been really difficult to not be at the Gemba, but they've been sending video and a schematics and blueprints and photos. And, you know, we've actually been doing pretty good given the fact you can't go there and actually see it and smell it and, you know, feel it and everything. Um, so it's better than I thought, but it's still very, very challenging to not be able to go there and, and actually point to the things that, you know, we're trying to figure out um, and help them figure out the best configuration, for example. And, um, you know, just, just looking at depth and width and things like that is just tough in photos and video. Yeah, I think uh, there's some good, like unspoken good sides. Like when you have a crappy leader that doesn't actually create any real value, well, guess what? That's a lot more obvious when we're all at home doing our own things. If you go to work each day and you don't do anything that has any impact on business, you can kind of get away with that in an eight hour shift in a large enough group. You cannot at home with your own set of deliverables. Like you just, you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, I was busy thing, you know, come into work and, and be busy all day so that you don't have to be productive. Um, it does, it does happen. You know, I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus, but you know who you are. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not at home sweeping the same spot three times, just waiting for five o'clock to come around. You know, <laughs> like that's just not a thing. Like, um, I had a recent example where just this week, the missus, she's texted me from work. This is Friday at like 12 o'clock. Says I have nothing to do the rest of the day. And then she couldn't leave from 12 to 5. Nothing to do but just kick rocks, play on my cell phone. I'm like, why would businesses induce this type of- I was gonna say, she needs to come work for me. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty to do here. Well, I can't have her go work for you because she's gonna learn all the real lean stuff and then she's gonna resent <laughs> me the rest of our marriage. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> well, I think uh, most folks know that my favorite book on management is the outstanding organization by karen martin and i've used it to great effect to sort of focus management groups and uh, i've even coached them just if you're gonna do something just ask yourself which one of these four pillars are you advancing with what you're about to do if the answer is none then it's not important don't do it um what i like probably probably the most impactful of the four characteristics of an outstanding organization uh, was the clarity piece. And interestingly, it is also sometimes the most difficult to explain or get people to see. And I liked the example in the book of, have you ever had to send an email saying, well, what did you really mean by that? Okay, then you lack clarity. Um, so I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about uh, some issues with clarity uh, in your work and, you know, tell us some stories about that. Yeah, well, I wrote a whole book on clarity, which was the follow on to the outstanding organization. And it, and it happened because there was such emotion about that chapter in the outstanding organization. Um, there were a lot of people sent really heartfelt emails and saying, oh, I had no idea that that's what was holding me back, our team back, our company back. And when I, I thought it was gonna be super easy to write Clarity First because it's one topic instead of four. And so those four pillars, just to make sure everyone understands what you're talking about, John, are Clarity, Focus, Discipline, and Engagement. 
And so the first pillar of clarity was the one that got all the emotion. And I thought it was going to be pretty easy. And I got into clarity really deeply and learned that it is vexing, vexing, vexing. And um, so a couple things, you know, first of all, there's communication clarity. And, you know, most people either are, they have a propensity toward, you know, seeking clarity and wanting to operate with clarity, or they actually avoid it um, and intentionally in some cases and not intentionally in other cases, but still nevertheless avoiding it. And clarity blind are the people that don't know that they're doing it, that they're, they're operating in this, you know, perpetual ambiguity environment and they're you know, communicating unclearly and they're not asking for clarity when they're, when people are communicating with them. And it just, it, it makes everything so much more difficult than it needs to be. And it's very risky because if someone says something to you, let's say uh, a you know, superior gives a, a person a project to work on and they aren't abundantly clear what exactly the project is, what the purpose of it is, what the you know, deliverable should look like and all those things, they could spend a ton of time and money um, and, and end up delivering something that's not at all what the person asked for. And so, and that happens a fair amount, but people are afraid to ask for clarity, sometimes for good reasons, because they've gotten kind of beaten down. And um, so creating the environment where clarity is first of all honored and uh, people are encouraging it. And there's truly, truly a safe environment to be clear that is you know, the first step of getting clarity in communication, especially. But that same fear kind of gets pervaded all through the organization when it comes to performance. And you know, people kind of not wanting to know the truth about performance because if you know the truth and if you don't do something about it, then you're being irresponsible. And it's just, you know, it's a lot of times it's messy to try to deal with performance issues. I don't mean individual performance, I mean organizational performance. And um, so, you know, when we walk into a client, we almost always see pretty high levels of ambiguity and it, it really is everything from people don't know what even true customer demand is. You know, a lot of times when I ask teams, we ask teams, you know, how many per day or week or whatever you know, do you work on? And they're like, I don't know. And it's like, wow, you know, how do you staff? How do you schedule work? How do you, how do you do anything effectively if you don't even know the basics of what your actual demand is? Um, and then, you know, what does good look like? Well, one person will say good looks like this and another person will say good looks like that. And, you know, so we spend a lot of time getting people to see through the same lens and defining what quality really is of the output, for example. So it is, it's all over the place. It's from, you know, people using terms that people don't understand and, and neither party recognizing that. And um, it's, you know, the finance people putting a report out that the, you know, director level even don't understand. Um, and thing, it just is really, I think the first, my, my mission in writing that book was to first make it an issue. Like it just, it is an issue. Um, and then that's the first step toward working toward clarity. I've got a couple of follow-ups that I thought through and feel free to tell me that I'm an idiot, but, um, I'm going to start with a four box for people. So can you see my, uh, I can. See my screen? That's supposed to be a four box. Um, let's see. Can I move this? Um, so on, on this side, right, you have um, clear and 
unclear on, on that axis. And then down here you have um, intentional and accidental or unintentional. And this has to do with uh, sort of individuals. And if you have someone who is unintentionally unclear, that quadrant is just a poor communicator and, and they can usually be coached. Then you have people that are intentionally unclear. I call those politicians. Those are people who, um, they, you know, they are vague on purpose, don't want to be pinned down. And then you have the, un, the intentional clear in this quadrant. That's the person who has some self-awareness and is trying to be as clear as possible in their communication. And then the unintentional clear quadrant, that's the charismatic person. That's the guy or gal that uh, they are generally clear because they're just naturally comfortable with uh, speaking to people. Um, and each group has kind of their own challenges um, and opportunities for improvement. So the intentionally clear person, uh, some of their challenges include sounding like they're talking down to people or rehearsed. Um, the intentionally unclear, their biggest problem is trust. They have difficulty developing trust with others uh, because of their approach to communication. Uh, as well as if you're intentionally being unclear, then you know how are we going to get you to be clear or embrace clarity? Um, we have to overcome your reasons and objections. Um, the unintentionally clear their biggest challenge is that they don't know what works or what doesn't. They're sort of relying on their natural charisma to communicate clearly. And when that doesn't work, uh, they don't know how to fix it. And then, of course, this quadrant probably has the most opportunity. They just need to be open to, to coaching. Um, but there can be that can be harder than it sounds. I've worked with some engineers, for example, that were just brilliant. Um, and, and some of them had uh, learning disabilities or um, other things that kind of hindered their ability to, to communicate. Um, and, and so it was just a challenge for them, you know, to overcome that. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I had one engineering group where I worked with them on appointing a spokesperson who was the one person in the group that was charismatic and could speak well. I said, look, you guys are doing fantastic work and your complaints all have to do with getting shot down and not taken seriously. And, and part of that is a communication gap. So we're gonna assign this guy um, to speak for the group and it worked pretty well for them. Yeah. yeah, if I could just say, Karen, that in many a conference room, I've seen John hand draw that clarity, focus, discipline, and engagement piece from your book. Not once, not twice, much more than that. So let me just say you have a transparent fan there. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. Say the, um, the unintentionally unclear can be coached. You're right about that. And they, they have to start with being comfortable asking people if they're being clear or not and finding the right way to say that so it doesn't sound condescending or anything like that and being becoming aware that what they think um, is clear is not. Um, 
so that's that's the first thing is you have to become safe you know feel safe asking people you know how clear the message was that they delivered the uh ones that are intentionally unclear the one caveat i give to that is that you know it's a it's a dangerous place for people to be and certainly where sociopaths operate much of the time um but there is in business a time and a place for intentional ambiguity and it's for example if a company is about to be acquired or there's some kind of a you know a, a big announcement coming up oh, product development new product development you know those kinds of things um you know there is a time and a place for it but it has to be very carefully done is you know you can't say well that's you know my intentional ambiguity that's a good thing um you know it, it has to be very carefully used yeah covid rules strikes me as a as a shining example with the laws changing in every place every week a company would be like well we're going to rely on state regulations and we're going to suggest you do whatever it is that the state says at this moment <laughs> well i think i think COVID has been a beautiful example in what happens when you have clarity and what happens when you don't because i mean it's you know behavior follows clarity in many cases and um and so, yeah, it's it's been really unfortunate that there have been so many different messages coming out very close in proximity. I understand that it's a changing condition. It is, and it's fast. I get that. But um, but I think that there hasn't been anywhere near the coordination that there should have been from a communication perspective across all walks of life. You know, medical, government, local, federal. You know, all that stuff. They just you know, um, it's been a bit of a cluster at times. I agree. Great, great example of, you know, how a lack of clarity can impact uh, outcomes and behaviors. Um, you know, do I, oh, I wear a mask. No, I don't wear a mask. I do wear a mask. How many do I wear? Two or three. What about this hazmat suit? Is this good? Is this going to work for me? Um, because everybody has um, something to lose in the current situation but they don't have clarity on how to deal with it in a socially responsible way. And yeah, so yeah. you just end up with uh, a little bit of chaos, people doing you know, what, they, what they want or feel is right. Um, and I think there's some great parallels to business there. Yeah, yeah, I just had an example where I went into a hotel and the I had been there before when masking was required everywhere in public areas in the hotel. And so then I went back about three or four weeks later and the mask sign was no longer on the front door. And this was in Texas, which has relaxed masking. And, um, and so I thought, okay, then you don't have to wear a mask, okay. And then I went into the elevator and the elevator had this very stern sign on the wall, you know, master mandated everywhere in a public space in this building. And I'm like, that's kind of a little bit late. <laughs> I've been through the lobby and everything. And so when I came back down, I asked the receptionist who did not have a mask on. And I said, are masks required here or not? She's like, well, you know, <laughs> I just was like, oh, I, I went to her book. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where it, it just makes people mistrust everything, you know, when you don't have a clear and consistent message, so. Yeah, imagine if you're a restaurant and that's how you operate. Your menu is near blank and it's like, ask our server for the daily special. And you ask the server and he's like, well, 
I don't know what we're cooking today or what you might want. Like it just doesn't work in business and everywhere you add that, you want to be as close to the stern, clear, concise restaurant style. I know exactly what I want and pick it. And everywhere you stray from that, you're just lost. Yeah. Well, and standard work is also another big one. You know, when, when you know, you see any kind of organization performance that's not stellar, it's almost always laced in the either lack of standard work, the lack of following standard work, the lack of managing standard work, the lack of measuring, you know, it's like any number of those combinations. And, you know, you have in most cases, people choosing to do work in you know, many different ways. Um, I was talking to a, a manager who said, you know, I've got you know, six people swapping out pumps and they do it six different ways. The same pump, same same conditions, they do it six different ways. And the mm -hmm. quality of that that action is not consistent. And I said, well, what, you know, do you have standard work? Um, and he's like, well, you know, I said, well, that's the problem. You know, you have to have clearly defined standard work that has flexibility for conditions that are different. It's not, you know, in cement for every condition, but you can standardize conditions um, and, and the reaction to different conditions. So. Anyway, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us when you don't have very clearly defined standard work in place. One of the most destructive things I've seen in business culture is when there are uh, rewards or punishments attached to outcomes with a lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. So if you give a, a group a project and there's a lack of clarity and then you chew that group out or find other ways to so, sort of socially punish them, um, that breeds a, a very toxic and resentful culture. But in the same way, ironically, if you reward a group during a lack of clarity, that also has uh, some negative consequences. Part of it is confusion. You know, It's like, well, I won the lottery. I hope I win it again next time, I, but I don't know how I did it. You know, It was like random chance. And then, of course, it can build resentment with other groups as well. Uh, well, you know, why are they being singled out for recognition? Uh, it doesn't seem like they did all that to me. I guess they're favorites type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, positively incentivizing something that's unclear is like a primary facilitator of narcissism. So you get these people that have unfortunately gone through that for years and they're like, I have this X factor. I have this indescribable quality that when I'm around, a process goes well. I'm like, no, no, the hell you don't. One, you just don't understand the process very well. And two, you have good people doing good work on a daily basis. None of those were impacted by you. But I mean, it doesn't take very long. I've been in a poisonous environment early on in my career where like you had absolutely no control over what was being measured and your career hinged on the success of that outcome. And you would have people that did very well for years on end because it's an arbitrary measurement that doesn't even exist in the laws of mathematics. And because they did so well, they're real go-getters, even though their decision-making was completely uncorrelated from the outcome. Be careful what you measure, for sure. Yeah, for sure, I've worked in a facility where the cube per hour was a metric. That is how much cubic feet of product we moved through the facility. And they moved everything from gigantic tractors that you couldn't fit inside my apartment down to accessories, water hose. Yeah. And we were graded on cube per hour. So imagine how, how like variable that could possibly be. 
Yeah, I think being very intentional about the behaviors you're trying to elicit and then figure out the measurement for how to get that behavior is what you need to do. And a lot of a lot of folks just aren't sophisticated enough to understand that there's all that psychology behind measurement that you have to take into account. So yeah, we, we, we help clients rethink measurement a lot because they, they really don't have quite the right measurements in place that get what they're actually looking for. So it's, it's important. Do you get a lot of clients that measure too much? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we spend a fair amount of time talking about what's really important. And we, in our course on key performance indicators, um, we, Jennifer's the instructor, she gives us an example of the car. So your car is a dashboard and it has, you know, so many things on it, but not a whole lot. There's a whole lot of other measurement going on behind the scenes that makes your car continue to function well. And if any of those go off, different things happen in the car. You can get signals, you can have your car actually stop because it's becoming unsafe and there's all kinds of things that can happen. So it's not necessarily that you don't measure all these things or someone's not measuring, but it's that the, you have a very limited number of the relevant few that are driving the, the bulk of the behavior that you're trying to get and the performance that you're trying to achieve. And then the other things are, are you, know, you know, allowing you to be more predictive on where you're heading or they allow you to get course correct and get back on the, on the road if you start going off the highway, you know, things like that. But um, yeah, it's uh, way too much measurement in many cases, <coughs> at least that, that people have to really pay attention to. And so, yeah. I've, I've seen that a lot more than, than the no or lack of measurement where almost every place I've worked has had a bunch of like semi-adjacent factors that they want to spend way too much of somebody's time to track that aren't even a barometer for what success looks like. And a lot of companies who can't directly tell you how they make money. That's so yeah. surprising to me. They don't specifically yeah. know how they make money. It is true. I think you find um, more lack of measurement outside of manufacturing, distribution, warehouses, logistics, and everything. I think that part of industry at least has more a more um, a more a long history of measurement and paying attention to measurement. And you know, when you get outside into the service sector and into office environments, there's often very little measurement at all. And, um, and we spend a fair amount of time in that area as well. So that's, uh, you know, just teaching people why measurement matters is often the first step. Yeah, I haven't worked in an office setting that had visual management anywhere in it. Yeah. Like literally anywhere. Yeah. Now, were we measuring outcomes or behaviors of any kind or maybe a TV that said how many emails we have for the day that business segment does. I have literally never worked in a place where an office had visual management around its processes. Yeah, the only time we often see it is demand data, saying like how many things came in in one day or one hour or whatever, but, but they don't do anything based on it. It's just reporting numbers. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of an odd, an odd choice. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey, you know, don't you think it would be great if we could tell everybody how they could customize their lean implementation program with Zoom Operational Excellence or the Karen Martin Group. That way they only pay for what they need.
I was on a call yesterday with a uh, consulting friend of mine. We're working on a project, and uh, we were discussing the recursive nature of lean implementation, uh, specifically around metrics and measurement. And one thing that consistently comes up is the things that you measure have an, an outsized impact on culture. It affects what people value. It affects what people pay attention to. And sometimes, you know, I've worked with companies that put a lot of time and effort into their culture, but then they implemented metrics that essentially um, contradicted everything they had worked so hard on up to that point. Um, so there's an element there too, in my experience, where the metrics you implement are going to affect your culture and your culture is going to affect the metrics and how they're handled. Um, it's a little bit of a, a circular relationship. It is. I We had a client, a healthcare client once where um, it was it was a very interesting project to help them reduce medication errors that happened at administration. So not in the filling of prescriptions or anything, but actually giving meds to patients. And they had an anonymous reporting system for people to report errors, which a lot of the healthcare system has. And I think it, it makes some sense to have this anonymous uh, reporting system. And the numbers were a certain number. And, you know, leadership was getting concerned because the numbers were what they were. And so we went in and, you know, I said, well, what would you like the number to be? And I, of course, zero, you know, which of course you do. Um, and then I said, you know, what about the possibility that in order to get closer to zero, the numbers need to go up? And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, like you have a fear-based organization here. And I would venture to guess that there's a lot more medication errors occurring than are being reported. And, you know, the executive team was just kind of floored by that suggestion. And, and I said, you, if you're serious about this, that's what has to happen because you have to know what's going on in order to start being able to do problem solving and get to root cause and causes and start little by little, you know, getting rid of the reasons why these medication errors are occurring. And it was just too counterintuitive for them to tackle and too scary for them to tackle. And so, you know, they made a little bit of inroads and it was better than nothing for sure. Anytime you save one person from harm, you, you know, that's, that's worthy. But, um, you know, because of that, that attitude of, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to see our numbers going up. Um, they, they didn't and, you know, the rest is history. So that's the thing about, you know, being serious about quality problems, especially you have to know where the quality problems really lie and, and what the numbers really are. Yeah, I think we've all seen more than our fair share of that, you know, in the business world of, um, you know, because of the response to outcomes, uh, the recorded data is just it's frankly falsified. There's not really a, right. uh, a nice way to put it, uh, fudged, whatever you want to say, but it's basically uh, falsified because of a, a work culture that is uh, punitive, scary, psychologically unsafe, fill in the blank. Yeah, I was born a kid that wanted to know the truth. And that's partly why I, I'm so drawn to clarity 
because I've always felt like even if the truth is horrible, I'd rather know what it is because then I know what to, I, I know what I'm dealing with and I have choices. I can make choices. Right. If right. I don't know what I'm dealing with, I, I can't, I can't make choices because I, I'm, I'm kind of clouded by knowing what's really going on. And, but I, you know, not everyone shares that, that belief that the truth, you know, will set you free ultimately. Um, and so it is a scary thing for a lot of people to, to seek clarity. But I would say that in the end, it's one of the most liberating things you can do. Yeah, it's similar to um, when a, a child is faced with a debilitating illness versus an adult, how you handle it. You know, with the, the child, you might say something like, you know, you're very sick, you're going to spend some time in the hospital and so on and so forth, because the child doesn't have agency. And so your goal at that point is to prepare them so that they're not scared and, and comfort them and protect them. But to the adult, you say, you have stage four cancer and you're going to die. You need to get your shit in order, right? Yeah. Because they actually have agency and have, have choice. In fact, it would, it would probably be uh, disrespectful to do otherwise, right? right? Right. And that's that intentional ambiguity that we were talking about earlier, what you, the, what you did with the child, you know, that's, that's intentional ambiguity that's done out of respect and love and, you know, sensible uh, communication versus irresponsible communication. Yeah, definitely misapplied in the workplace. I've seen quite a bit there, John, where uh, we have to work hard to create a place where people feel they have agency. Right. They deserve to know the hard facts, the hard truth, the direction we're going. They deserve. We have to offer people the respect that you're a professional and I'm going to give you those hard facts and you're going to make those right decisions with it. And not this like grown up, you know, daycare that we run in some operations from time to time. Yeah, I think the respect for people principle. I mean, it, when when I coach executives or teams on lean, you know, the two pillars that we always go back to is respect for humanity and continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the two play off of each other, right? But respect for humanity is, includes you're a grown up. I'm not gonna be an asshole when I talk to you about performance because I've seen that too, you know, where people use that as an excuse to, to just be a jerk. You know, well, your shit's not right. Would you rather I just, you know, treat you like a kid and not give it to you straight? N no, but I would appreciate it if you were a little less abrasive in your communication. Right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the more common experience I've had is um, really infantilizing some of the workforce um, and, and treating a lot of people in the workforce like you aren't smart enough to get it. Um, you can't really be a contributing member of the improvement team. Um, I mean, Jake, you and I have some horror stories about, you know, an HR department that's directly telling us, you know, your demographic isn't smart enough to think about their future. They just need to focus on their day-to-day -day tasks. You know, coming from a human resources department, right? Um, so it, it's out there and and... That's just been my experience. The respect for people element is uh, frequently that aspect that needs the most work. Yeah. In many organizations, that is true. 
Can we pivot for a minute? I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your latest book. So Clarity First, um, you know, I was putting together all this content and trying to figure out what is the spine, what's the structure. So I finally landed on five P's to kind of structure the content around. So those, those P's are purpose, priorities, process, performance, and problem solving. So I go through the book uh, talking about clarity of purpose, meaning organizational purpose and why that matters. Um, it's very difficult to get people excited about work when they don't understand why the work is the work, why the company exists in the first place, those kinds of things. And then with priorities, um, which I go into in, in the outstanding organization too, quite a bit in the focus chapter, is you know, the, in many organizations, there's just way too much going on at once and they're changing you know, priorities too much. So you can't really get traction on anything meaningful. So it's about clarity of priorities and strategy deployment or Hoshin Conry is a great you know, practice in order to help an organization get it, you know, get it together when it comes to priorities and get alignment around priorities. So you don't have one division going off here and another one going off there or one department, et cetera. And then with, um, with process, I mean, processes, you know, to a point we made earlier about standard work, processes are not well defined or nor understood in most organizations. And, you know, we do a fair amount of value stream work. So at the macro level view of how work flows and then process level work, which is the more tactical micro level view. And um, it's just, you know, very liberating for people to understand how work actually flows and, and value gets delivered to customers. And then, <coughs> excuse me, um, the, oh, I, I skipped perform. Oh no, performance is, is next. So then how do they actually perform? You know, what, what are the actual results of those, of those, of the processes that you have? And then finally, how do you problem solve? And when I have clear problem solving questions that are very specific questions that you ask every step along the way in order to get all the way to a really clear root cause, clear about the problem, clear about the root cause, and then the countermeasures that you use to experiment with kind of fall in your lap. When you get that level of clarity about a problem, it's, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of guessing that you have to do about, I'm not really sure what's going to work. Um, when you're thinking about that, I'm not sure what's going to work. It's usually because you're not clear enough about the problem or the root causes for it. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the clarity first book. And, um, a there's a lot in between that too. Uh, a lot of a lot of little psychological nuggets in the middle of that too about why we don't have better clarity in those areas. But it was fun to write, hard to write. But um, I, I I'm very passionate about it. It's my favorite so far. So yeah, there you have it, folks. Your little uh, tasting menu from Clarity First. Uh, be sure to go out there and purchase your copy, probably from Amazon because nobody shops anywhere else anymore. Um, where else can people pick up a copy of your book, Karen? It's on all the major booksellers. And there's like, what, two of those left? What, major <laughs> booksellers? Yeah, there, there are fewer and fewer, it seems, for sure. I really appreciate um, Clarity First as well as the Outstanding Organization. Um, Highly recommended. I like your writing style is clear and concise and, and crisp. And as somebody who has you know written my own small book, I know how much effort and time it takes to pare down everything that first starts out on a page. Um, and I could tell the amount of work that went into it. I think you're very skilled and I just appreciate 
your contribution uh, to the lean community and the business community. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 quite something to start out with this, you know, rambling idea of what you want to, you know, say and then get it so it's really tight and concise. And the bar was very high. You know, I, I remember saying to my editor, oh gosh, you know, I always strive to be clear, but now I really better be clear <laughs> because people will say like, yeah, 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 show so she doesn't know anything about clarity. She wasn't clear. Um, so uh it seems like mostly I pulled it off. Well, at John's house, you'll find that your book is on a shelf and two shelves below it, you'll find mine. Ah. So it gives you an idea of how like, how would we stack up every time I go there? I'm offended. <laughs> That's very good. Put yours on top of mine. <laughs> yeah, but what Jake's not telling you is that I have precisely calculated the amount of weight that each shelf on this bookshelf can hold oh. and <laughs> use the recursive algorithm to figure out as I take a book out where I need to cycle it back in. So, uh, what's uh, that game? Is it Jenga? The one that yeah, pieces and, yeah. and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like that. Um, so don't take it personally, Jake. It just has to do with with mass, and yours is a soft cover, and Karen's is a hard cover. Um, plus, go. I put the books that I want people to see and think that I'm smart. I put those in front, and I put the dumb books in the back. So that's a that's a fair point. No, I like what you said about the countermeasures becoming obvious. So I just think of like this morning, like my coffee tastes like absolute shit. Like step three was put shit in coffee. <laughs> you should just probably not do that step. <laughs> you need a new process. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's great. Well, Karen, it has been a pleasure. Hard to believe that we're already coming up on an hour. Um, let's talk briefly about how folks can contact you okay so website wise there's tkmg.com for the consulting arm tkmgacademy.com for the online learning arm uh linkedin is karen martin opex twitter is also karen martin opex and i don't know facebook um <laughs> uh, it's not my favorite platform um so i i don't know what that one is i th i think it's i, I don't know so just it's okay nobody does facebook, facebook anymore anyway <laughs> I, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter all the time. So <laughs> I'm, I'm only on Twitter to screenshot stuff for LinkedIn. It's the only oh, reason. that's good. That's good. Well, we will link to your websites and um, LinkedIn profile down below the video. Also put them on the screen uh, for everybody to see. Thank so you. thank you very much for joining us. Is there a word of wisdom you would like to leave with our audience today? Mm. You know, um, this morning I, I posted something on LinkedIn that was a, a Wall Street Journal article about we're going toward a four-day work week instead of a five-day work week. And my uh, number one reason that people are burned out, which was the point of the article, uh, is that uh, processes don't serve people well and the work is more difficult than it needs to be. So, and that has been my mantra for my entire adult life. A work does not have to be as hard as we make it. And, you know, I, I just think that back to respect for people, the theme that keeps coming up is that, you know, when processes don't work for people and they have to work excessively hard and or worst case, they're unsafe, that is a fundamental act of disrespect. And people know they're experts in the work. They know how to do good work. They know how to improve the work. They know what is needed. 
we just need to let them do it. And then they start getting more engaged. Work's not so difficult. And work is very expensive when it's difficult. If there's difficulty, there's money going down the drain, period. And so I'm just going to leave people with that. Like work does not need to be as difficult as we make it. And we are all obligated to do everything we can to change that. John, I'll tell you that last week I absolutely fanboyed over Paul Dunlop for the entire hour and you got your chance to get me back having Karen on. So I hope you got everything you wanted out of that. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, you guys. You're awesome. And I love I love seeing your posts and responding back and forth on social media. Well. I didn't vote on who was sexier. You did not vote. I put I that out. I didn't know the second person. Who was the second person? I saw the name, but well, I hold on. You don't have to know who the second person is. It's obviously me. <laughs> they have pictures on them. That's all that matters. You look at the picture and make a choice. I did not see pictures. I only saw names. Scroll down. There's a comment. I put them both in a collage right now. Oh, I didn't see that. I'm sorry. My bad. This is going to take a lot of editing. <laughs> for those of us here at Equality Podcast, thank you so much for joining us today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.